0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 29th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1500 in Beijing, 9am in Kyiv, 7am here in London and 2am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead...
1: God bless you all. May 2024 be the best year of our lives.
0: As Maine becomes the second state to bar Donald Trump from the presidential primary ballot, we'll ask if his wishes for the future will come true. We'll have a browse through the newspaper front pages, discuss what to watch on television, and then... Saddam Hussein called
1: me a serpent when I was ambassador at the United Nations and I happened to have a snake pin that I had gotten and I decided to wear it whenever we did something on
2: Iraq.
0: Our soft power series looks at the impact of fashion diplomacy. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. a look at what else is happening in the news. France, Germany, Britain and the United States have condemned an increase by Iran in the production rate of highly enriched uranium of up to 60% purity, close to the level used for nuclear weapons fuel. Nicaraguan police have detained two senior Catholic priests who are close to the country's top church leader, raising to at least six the number of clergymen detained this week in the country. And the U.S. military's secretive X-37B robot space plane blasted off from Florida last night on its seventh mission. The first launched atop a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket, capable of delivering it to higher orbit than ever before. Now, the U.S. presidential primaries begin next month, preceding a November election, which may well prove to be hugely globally consequential. Well, joining me to discuss this is Scott Lucas, who's adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. Scott, just how important is the 2024 U.S. presidential election?
1: Very good morning to you, Georgina. I I think for the U.S. and for the world, it is the most important election since the US Civil War in 1865. And I'm not saying that just to get a social media sound bite. I think when you consider this domestically, on top of all of the issues you talk about in the United States, we can talk about the economy, women's rights, including abortion rights, LGBT rights, immigration, uh, the state of health care, the question about education, uh, climate change. When you add to that that one of the candidates is a man who, let's put it bluntly, tried to carry out a coup in 2021 to stay in the White House. Uh, one of the candidates is a man who is facing 91 felony charges in four separate sets of indictments. You realize that this is unprecedented situation. And you also realize what the impact would be when you talk about this moment in global history with a Russian aggression in Ukraine, where that man we're talking about, Donald Trump, would immediately cut all back into Ukraine if he became president, where you talk about where the uncertainty and the mounting death toll in terms of the violence in Israel and Gaza. And when you talk about just the general question of the international order that we've had since 1945, an international order, again, that Donald Trump opposes.
0: Mm. Uh, and I mean, he himself has been saying some pretty dark things over the Christmas period. Can you tell us more about that?
1: I mean, he he has now said quite bluntly, um, you know, when asked, would this be a dictatorship? Well, if he won the presidency and took office, he said, well, not after day one. And that's not simply a joke because that matches up with Trump vowing to take retribution on all his enemies. And he means political enemies. He means judges that he's upset about. He means other legislators. He means just individuals who he think have offended him. And when in the past week he has repeatedly talked about, uh, quote, migrants poisoning the blood of the United States, rhetoric which is more associated with different types of politicians in Germany in the 1930s, Um, he will, of course, come back and say, oh, my words have been taken out of context. Hey, what's going on here? Maybe I'm joking. But don't be fooled. He does mean this to an extent. Uh, There is no rationality here. There's no consideration of policy as we're taught to consider it in terms of a logical mannered process. This is a man who wants to be an autocrat.
0: Mm. I mean, how likely is it, though, that he will be the candidate? We saw yesterday Maine became the second state to bar Trump from the presidential primary ballot. How might these legal problems impact his
1: status? Well, first of all, Georgina, I think you and I need to avoid falling into the trap, which unfortunately dominates much of US media, which is where we only talk about Trump and ignore the fact that not only are there these serious issues, there are other candidates who are standing. Uh, Because Trump sucks all the oxygen out of the room, you may not hear so often about Nikki Haley, who is actually surging in the New Hampshire primary and could run a strong second there. You don't hear about Ron DeSantis as much or Vivek Ramaswamy or Chris Christie, which of course is Trump's tactic. But if you wanted to talk now about the legal and political front about Trump being on ballots. It is significant that Maine has just joined Colorado in disqualifying Trump from the Republican primary because of his involvement in insurrection with the Capitol attack in January, 2021. It is significant because Maine's decision is not a court decision, it's an executive decision made by the Maine government, by the Secretary of State. Other states could follow. Now, I think right now, if it's only those two states, not a huge dent for Trump. If you have more states that follow, then you've got a snowball effect. That raises the question of, will the US Supreme Court intervene to say that no state can disqualify Trump on any grounds? And it raises the question of, given that the New Hampshire primary is right next to Maine, will that primary on January 23rd be affected by the Maine decision with some potential Trump voters saying, the guy's carrying too much baggage, or will the Trump voters, as he hopes, say, our man's a victim, we're going to rally around him.
0: Scott, thank you. That was Scott Lucas, and you're listening to The Globalist on Monaco Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over
3: 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to the Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all
0: around the world. 10 past 7 in London. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio, coming to you live from Midori House. And uh, we're going to have a look at the papers now. I'm joined in the studio by author and political journalist Terry Stiastini. Welcome back to the studio, Terry. We've just been talking to Scott Lucas about uh, the primaries in America and of course the fact that Maine has now joined Colorado in banning Donald Trump from uh, the presidential, uh, the preliminary ballot. Uh, Now this is a story that obviously is featuring hugely in the U media. Uh, good piece in the New York Times.
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, as you say, uh, it's all over the American press, not su- not surprisingly, because um, Shanna Bellows, the Secretary of State in Maine, has said that she's barred Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot. And uh, the New York Times is looking into um, other states potentially and other decisions um, that might be taken about uh, the application of this uh, part of Article 14, which potentially says that if you were you know, taking Taking part in in an insurrection, you are not allowed uh, to be a presidential candidate. Um, And so it says, uh, courts in two other states, Minnesota and Michigan, um, have both said that election officials can't stop the Republican Party from putting Donald Trump on the ballot. It is still uh, up in the air in Oregon, where there's going to be another court decision uh, in California as well. But I think the big question here, which uh, this article is pointing out, is does this now uh, go to the Supreme Court because? Apparently, it's saying there are challenges uh, to Donald Trump being a candidate in now over 30 states. And people are saying that because the state's rules and interpretations are are different, that perhaps ultimately... The Supreme Court needs to decide this, and mm. you can imagine this is then going to be, you know, another
0: huge political story. And of course, the, the Supreme Court we know, packed by by Trump anyway. Uh, California is interesting because they've announced that he will remain on the ballot. Uh, but of course, this is a very very democratic state, and I understand that this just comes down to the fact that election officials have limited power within California to remove candidates.
3: Yes, that seems that seems to be right. I mean, they're saying uh, they're you know, these are incredibly complex questions, and you know. It, it doesn't give the Secretary of State within California authority to disqualify presidential candidates, but they are still looking at, you know, the legal options that are going there. But then the, the governor has said in California said last week, he says, there's no doubt that Donald Trump is a threat to our liberties and even to our democracy, in his words. But in California, we defeat candidates we don't like at the polls. Everything else is a political distraction.
0: Mm. Now, one of the uh, phrases that Donald Trump used that have been that's been upsetting many people is poison in the blood when he talks talks about migrants and of course similar rhetoric has been used by this uh, conservative government here in the UK talking about uh, immigrants to this country uh, and it's been a problem for years as new papers have just uh, set out we've um, seen what uh, Blair's government was talking about nearly 2000s.
3: Yes this is interesting so every year the, the National Archives releases sets of documents that hadn't you know, yet been made public. It used to be a 30 year rule and these are documents from, from from 20 years ago and looking at through the papers coverage of these, some of this thinking, gosh I was actually working then, I never remember all of these arguments at the time but obviously now you get to see the actual files and the actual letters people wrote but it seems that yes, sending, you know, there was a big problem back in the early 2000s about asylum, there were people coming, uh, you know, through the, from the French coast coming across to the UK so this is not um, a new problem but even then it seems that uh, the Labour government were looking at options um, and they Retitled their report Asylum, the Nuclear Option after a brainstorming session that uh, Tony Blair's advisors had. And they were considering potentially send it, either sending asylum seekers to camps on the Scottish island of Mull and then removing them to what they called then safe havens in other countries such as Turkey, South Africa, and Kenya. Um, and again, you know, the same arguments coming around. This does suggest that perhaps this was an idea that being kept in the back of a, a filing cabinet by the civil servants and occasionally came well, minister, you know, you could try this, but I possibly wouldn't recommend it. Um, and then looking at the Australian system, um, and they were also saying, you know, a return uh, Iraqi asylum seekers to a centre in Turkey, uh, Zimbabweans to South Africa, Somalis to Kenya, so talking of having lots of different centres. And then again, you know, the same argument still coming up, you know, what would we do about the European um, Convention on Human Rights and saying that, uh, we would almost certainly lose the case when it got to Strasbourg. We would have two to three years in the meantime when we could send a strong message to the system about our tough new stance. So again, you know, what sort of goes around comes around and, and this has obviously been an idea that has, has now the government is attempting to put into practice.
0: And with very little understanding, it would seem to me, of how internal politics works in places like Africa. Zimbabwean refugees, there are around about two million of them on, in South Africa, suffering horrific xenophobic attacks. I mean, and, and there are refugee camps there, or, or many, many refugees there uh, who who are targeted by South Africans. Likewise, if you're going to send people from uh, the from from the Democratic Republic of Congo to Rwanda, there's absolutely no love lost between those two countries, and it just seems to me that that many of this has just not been thought through, even though clearly we've been thinking about it for decades.
3: Well, exactly, and it's saying you know there are you know uh, advisors, you know, Jonathan Powell and people pointing out the problem, saying you know skeptical that host countries would be willing in this sort of di- diplomatic language and saying, oh, we believe we can persuade Turkey in return for financial support. But exactly, as you say, there's so many countries around the world where they are hosting enormous numbers of refugees from, from neighbouring countries. And the idea that they would do this sort of on Britain's behalf was, you know, again, <laughs> not exactly something that was likely to happen in the way Britain thought it might.
0: Yeah. Now, let's go to The Times, which is talking about Spain and the wor- word of the year. Yes. So I
3: found this really interesting. I mean, we've often been talking, you know, this year, particularly in this country about the kind of language uh, that politicians are using about each other and have we lost a kind of a level of civility, I suppose. Um, but now even the choice of the word of the year in Spain, according to the Times, has become a polarising choice. And the choice of the word of the year was polarisation. Um, foundation run by the Royal Spanish Academy chose the word because of its great president presence in the media. Um, but then the Prime Minister got extremely cross about this, um, Pedro Sanchez, he said, the, well, it's the opposition who is responsible for what he calls asymmetric polarisation. He said, here there are only people who insult and people who are insulted. And he said, we're not going to engage with any more of these affronts and respond to the noise with more noise. And then so because he said this, and he sort of said, oh, it's everybody else's fault. Um, so then the right wing said, well, no, it's it's all the socialists' fault. Um, and he said, Sanchez's words are singularly paradoxical for a politician who has made confrontation and the erection of a wall between Spaniards his personal brand but it just seems to be uh, that in Spanish politics at the moment kind of anything seems to go and uh, for instance uh, ministers had called the leader of the opposition a compulsive liar and a crook Um, some minister had called uh, the head of the Madrid regional government incompetent with dubious mental balance Um, so you know uh, just raging um, political uh, rhetoric in Spain uh, which even when it's pointed out makes people seems to make people even more cross Uh, Why are people
0: uh, concerned about the phrase me gusta la fruta?
3: (laughs) This is a bizarre one. So you remember in the UK, James Cleverly got in trouble where he was accused of calling a town uh, a a not very nice place. A shithole. Are we (laughs) allowed to say that? Okay. And he said, no, 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 it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a shithole. It was, uh, he said it was a shit MP or something like that. But so something similar has happened in in Spain where me gusta la fruta, somebody was seen in Parliament to um, mouth the phrase uh, son of a bitch in in Spanish. And I said, what did you say? She said, oh, no, I didn't say that. I said, me gusta la fruta. And so that <laughs> phrase itself has now become um, an insult and a right-wing slogan. How so.
0: very, very odd. Um, I'd like to look now at Politico, who are reporting about an explosion on a Greek-owned ship on the way to Ukraine. What more do we know about that? Well,
3: yes, again, this is, you know, obviously more, more seriously, it's a Greek-owned cargo ship, which was travelling um, through the Black Sea. It was en route to Ukraine to be loaded up with grain. This was was the the Vissos ship, um, which was um, sailing under a Panamanian flag and heading towards the Ukrainian port of of Ismail. And it hit an explosive uh, device which damaged the ship. Fortunately, only people, only minor injuries. Um, But this is, you know, it is concerning because of, uh, after the UN deal collapsing, uh, saying that Russia wouldn't attack any grain vessels, uh, vessels, sorry, vessels, vessels. (laughs) I can't speak properly this morning. Um, And, you know, there are concerns. About, you know, given all the conflict near the Black Sea ports um, and Kiev says there's a humanitarian corridor and the vessel is now trying to head to the port to try and see what's happened there but it just raises you know the concerns about you know is shipping going to be able to to get through the black sea um, you know why is there a mine there you know how how has this incident happened so i think a lot of people will be worried about this and, and looking to see
0: what else might have ha- be going on here absolutely i think you've uh, inadvertently invented a new word there a vessel is a missile that targets <laughs> a ship obviously good <laughs> (laughs) Terry Stiasny, very many thanks indeed to you. Uh, You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio and here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. France, Germany, Britain and the United States have condemned an increase by Iran in the production rate of highly enriched uranium of up to 60% purity, close to the level used for nuclear weapons fuel. In a joint statement, the Allies made no mention of any consequences Iran could face for the production hike, but called for its reversal and said they remained committed to a diplomatic solution over the feud over Tehran's nuclear program. The US military's secretive X-37B robot space plane blasted off from Florida last night on its seventh mission. The first launched atop a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket, capable of delivering it to higher orbit than ever before. The Boeing-built vehicle, roughly the size of a small bus and resembling a miniature space shuttle, is built to deploy various payloads and conduct technology experiments on years-long orbital flights. And Nicaraguan police have detained two senior Catholic priests who are close to the country's top church leader, raising to at least six the number of clergymen detained this week in the country. It's alleged the two priests were detained for publicly praying for jailed Bishop Rolanda Alvarez, the most prominent critic of President Daniel Ortega. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, it's time now for a roundup of the latest television news. And I'm joined by Scott Bryan, a TV critic and broadcaster. Good morning to you, Scott. Morning. Uh, I, like many people all over the world, received an email uh, in the last couple of days informing me that Amazon Prime would be including limited advertisements.
2: So essentially, it's going to mean that unless you pay uh, two ninety £2.99, um, £2.99 in the UK or maybe €2.99 or $2.99, you will essentially be having to ex- accept advertising on Amazon Prime Video. Now, they have said that you will be seeing fewer adverts than, let's say, if you're watching traditional linear TV and with some of their competitors But I mean, as you can imagine, I think it's had a bit of a backlash because some people have been saying, hang on, I thought I would be joining the streaming revolution to get away from these adverts, of course. When the cable industry started back in the 80s, one of the promises they made back then was this was going to be a way for you to not to enjoy TV without watching adverts. And then, of course, that then over the course of the next few years became swamped with them. And now we're seeing essentially the same with streaming. Amazon have said on their part that they've been um, that they're having to introduce this uh, because they want that uh, money from advertising to be put into investment for new programs. But I guess this is this kind of issue that a lot of streaming's been having at the moment where if the consumer is not willing to pay any more, where is that money going to come from? And that money is going to be coming from advertising.
0: Mm. And is that across the board? Are we seeing a kind of reinvention of the streaming business model?
2: We really are. I mean, mean, we've seen Disney Plus um, globally um, having to introduce um, uh, advertising. We've seen it with Netflix too. But I think the reason why... Amazon has been having a bit more of a backlash than others is that with Netflix and with Disney Plus, they are there if you are on a cheaper tariff. So the consumer has the option to maybe pay a few dollars or a few pounds less to actually go and accept those adverts. So there seems to be a bit of consumer choice in there, particularly if household budgets are particularly squeezed. I think with Amazon Prime Video, the idea that you have to pay more, I think, is what is frustrating people. But also, I think this points a little bit more towards Amazon's future. I was reading an article last year, uh, so early this year, but not it's not past the end of the year yet, in um, Bloomberg, and it was talking about how Amazon's hope is to create an ecosystem of one of its own. So, for example, you will be um, on Amazon website trying to find, let's say, some books, it will keep that in mind, and then those adverts that you will be seeing might be around those products that you have been inquiring. So essentially, it's creating an ecosystem purely based on your own preferences, and, and therefore are able to have incredibly tailored advertising. I guess the consumer concern would be, oh goodness, is my browser history now I'm going to be forming <laughs> exactly. part of my consumer purchases? Mine would
0: consist of adverts for dog poo bags, I think. Um, oh, yeah. The FT has, has uh, sort of continued on this theme, Uh, it's talking about how a shakeout has begun after a five billion streaming loss for, for some of the streaming giants.
2: Yes, yeah, so if you think that you've overspend overspent slightly over the Christmas period, um, nothing in comparison to the streaming giants. So, so essentially, um, Warner Bros. Discovery, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, um, NBC—they—they they, uh, the FT have totaled together the amount of streaming losses that these companies have had had incurred, and they reckon it's now over five billion. So, of course. There was so much competition at the start of the streaming era, particularly because of the rise of Netflix, that all of these long-established titles have have felt that they have to, had to spend their way out of it. Hopefully, getting that growth um, uh, paid back by subscriptions in the future. I think to some of the larger players, um, they have been able to acquire some money back, but now it's coming to the. Uh, the point in which these companies have built up a substantial amount of debt and then running out of options. Of course, in the last few weeks, there's been talk about PowerMount Plus, a a sort of rather smaller company compared to the likes of Warner Brothers discovery potentially merging but then that's actually caused a bit of a uh, concern because they're saying well actually what will that change i mean you'll be able to have the archive of library together but you've both built up substantial debt so i think it, it looks as if we're going to be having within the tv industry a certainly a bit more of a challenging uh, 2024 i mean 2023 wasn't even that great for them the fact that there was the writing and acting strikes Um, existing um, sort of creating a bit of a difficulty for production but i think now going forward they're going to be having some big cuts to either programmings to libraries to staff um, or oh, I hate saying this probably increases in prices and maybe more advertising.
0: Mm, well Scott presuming we can stomach that advertising what will you be watching in 2024? What are your top picks?
2: So I think uh, some of the joys of TV is, is purely the fact that it is unpredictable. Some of the biggest shows could end up being flops and whilst conversely a small show you might never have heard of on a min- minuscule budget could end up being the biggest sensation of the year. So I, I, I try not to sort of put too much on predictions because the Joy of TV is that it is inherently unpredictable but but three things stand out to me there's the regime which is um, a new HBO uh, drama starring uh, Kate Winslet of course Kate, Kate Winslet, huge film star but in recent years um, was a sensation in mayor of East Town she's in a new HBO drama where she plays a, a completely different character an authoritarian leader based in the um, uh, Eastern Europe at the time of the Soviets. Um, uh, decline and fall, um, realising that she's lost her grip on power and she tries to use any means necessary to to take hold. So very different role for her. There's also Rivals on Disney+, Plus, which is an eight-part series looking into the world of ruthless television exec- executives in the 1980s. And it is, of course, based on the book um, by uh, Jilly Cooper. And it features pretty much everybody ever, <laughs> from uh, David Tennant to Emily Atak to Danny Dyer, of all people Um, and then there's also a drama called One Day which is based on the book by David Nicholls essentially about two people who meet up year year on year on the same date and you see their lives change I think it's um, interesting that this was a big film of course but um, it's now been turned to a 14 episode TV adaptation with David Nicholls that the author's uh, uh, permission and involvement and it also stars Ambika Mod who um, was in This Is Going To Hurt and one of my favourite dramas of last year and she failed to get a BAFTA nominee so hopefully she'll get one hit here in this drama.
0: Scott, thank you very much indeed. That was the TV's critic, Scott Bryan. You're listening to The Globalist on Monaco Radio.
2: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from
0: over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest
1: minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at ubs.com.
0: And finally.